morning, everybody. Welcome to School Psych Podcast. I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist um, working in the state of Maryland. Really excited tonight. Um, embarrassingly, as a school psychologist, you know, I, I feel like I don't know enough about the social and emotional side of our jobs um, because I think that most of my knowledge comes from the cognitive, um, academic type type area. So anytime we have um, amazing guests on that do the talk about that aspect and I'm really excited, especially um, Dr. Roberts being talked up so much by Eric and Rebecca. So I, I know that I'm in for a treat and I'm going to learn a lot. So I'm really, really excited, but I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Hello, everybody. Happy long weekend. I hope many of you have tomorrow off for Martin Luther King Day and are enjoying um, a, a peaceful Sunday evening. And thank you for being with us. Um, the, group, the easiest way to participate if you are watching us live is to log into your YouTube account and you can comment right next to the video. We'll be looking for comments and questions. Please feel free to share with what, share with us whatever you're thinking or um, any questions that you have. We like for this to be an interactive discussion. Also, if you are um, listening and can't log into YouTube, you can comment using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. You can comment on the School Psyched Podcast page on Facebook or School Psych, your school psychologist. And you can also, of course, comment on Twitter. We'll be looking for notifications and looking forward to sharing the conversation tonight and over time as you are uh, catching up and listening later. And now I'm gonna pass it on to Eric who will introduce our wonderful guest. All right, thank you, Rebecca. I'm excited uh, to have Dr. Roberts with us this evening. Um, Rebecca and I first ran across him during a podcast he was a guest on called Two Psychologists, Four Beers, which is a fantastic uh, podcast by some social psychologists in, I believe, the Toronto area in Canada. And it's a lot of fun, very interesting, fascinating, great discussion. So on that podcast, uh, they had been speaking about the replication crisis, about personality theory, about uh, the big five, and a number of other things. And so that uh, sparked our interest. And Rebecca and I had sort of joked, as sometimes we do, that, oh, we need to get him on the podcast. And um, who's going to connect with him first? So our, our little uh, fun rivalry. And um, sure enough, true to form, Rebecca uh, beat me out uh, again and said, <laughs> I got Dr. Roberts. And we, you know, we got this email from him and this wonderful uh, response that he'd love to come on. So uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Roberts. Dr. Brent Roberts is a professor of psychology in the Social Personality Organizational Division at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He received his PhD from Berkeley in 1994 in personality psychology and has also worked at the University of Tulsa prior to joining the faculty at the University of Illinois. He's received a number of awards, uh, including the J.S. Tanaka Award, uh, Dissertation Award for Methodical and Substantive Contributions to the Field of Personality Psychology, Carolyn Ed Diner Mid-Career Award in Personality Psychology, uh, Theodore Milan Mid-Career Award in Personality Psychology, Henry Murray Award, and a number of other awards um, acknowledged as being highly cited and an honorary doctoral degree along with uh, his other accolades. He's also been the editor of uh, several journals and been on editorial boards of several journals, personality and psychology and social psychology, um, personality and social psychology review, perspectives on social science, and is currently chair of the Social and Behavioral Sciences Research Initiative at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, Dr. Roberts' primary lines of research are uh, understanding patterns of continuity and change in personality across decades of adulthood and the mechanisms that affect these patterns and also on personality assessment. And this second line of research includes studies focusing on meaning and scope of the trait of conscientiousness and the relationship between conscientiousness and the health process, the utility of contextualized assessments of personality and the use of IRT, item response uh, theory in personality assessment. So awful lot of things. I, I was also impressed by um, Dr. Roberts H index, a number of citations. So I know that means a lot to our academicians uh, who listen in, I think at times. So 
Dr. Roberts has been cited over 40,000 times. So I found that very interesting uh, with an H index of 84. And so I do want to talk, not just to uh, prop you up, Dr. Roberts, but also uh, talk about some of these things you've studied and researched and perhaps the application of some of personality theory to something we could do in education. How would, might we apply and measure um, social and emotional learning skills? So that was a big introduction, but welcome. And uh, what can you tell us about some of this stuff? I, I feel like I shouldn't talk now. I just have to stop because I'm going to be pretty much downhill from there. So <laughs> questions? <laughs> Thank you for that kind introduction. I appreciate sure. it. I appreciate the invitation. Um, I, I very much like the opportunity to talk to uh, people outside of my regular group of, of scientists. And I have a, a soft spot, especially for those of you who dwell in the, the more difficult trenches of life, which uh, I, I, I think school psychology is one of those. Um, the fact that you're doing uh, the real hard work of marrying the science that we do with the application of that science to something that really everyone should care about. So I, I appreciate the work you guys do. Um, I, I think I, I sent a slide deck and I don't want to go through the whole slide deck, but if you'd like to look at the slide deck, that would be fine. Um, I can give you a, a brief um, overview of some of the ideas there and maybe a little bit of the background for why the heck a personality psychologist uh, who wasn't working in schools was giving a talk on social emotional skills, non-cognitive skills, and how the heck that happened. And I can say it wasn't uh, planned by any means. So it was. There's a tremendous amount of serendipity in life, as, as we know, and m mine has been blessed with more than I, I could have ever guessed. Um, and especially when it comes to the research that we do in my lab and how it's been used and how it's, let's say, manifest in other places. Um, my my research, um, as the intro uh, focused on, has really been on personality continuity and change. I mean, you know, my heart of hearts is like. You know, why do people stay the way they are? Why don't they change? You know, why if they do change, why do they change? And why don't they change faster is usually the question I get from people. But nonetheless, um, you know, what is it that we can do to, to change people? Um, it was a, a, a line of research that was not, let's say, um, a key core domain of personality psychology when I started. We were very much into figuring out whether the big five existed and heritability of personality traits and things of that sort. And the personality development side of things wasn't necessarily focused on. So I spent two decades working on those issues, trying to figure out how consistent personality was, how much it changed, um, and whether it could be changed. Uh, and we did a lot of work and we were innocently you know, going along in our own field, doing our own work. And, and in my mind, established clearly you know, personality, like other things, is consistent, but not so consistent as to say that it doesn't change. When we bothered to look at change, we found a lot of growth, especially actually after um, people leave school. Um, so the majority of change, and it was quite positive, was happening mostly in the 20s and the 30s. So people get more conscientious, more emotionally stable, and more agreeable as they get older. And then when we um, had the opportunity more recently to, to ask the question, you know, can you actually change personality traits? We found actually a tremendous amount of evidence, especially for the, the trait of, of neuroticism. And this was another one of those happenstances where it turns out a lot of um, clinical psychologists had tracked personality traits in their intervention studies and shown, of course, that they changed along with all the other things they like to study, many of which are more um, consonant with the, the ideas that you deal with in social emotional skills, for example. And so you have depression and anxiety and, and panic attacks, and then you they have a personality trait measure and you show some type of intervention would, would increase or decrease whatever it was you wanted to do. We got all those studies together and found that, yeah, if you go see a therapist, it seems that your personality traits do change. So that was our, our background. Uh, somewhere probably about 10 years ago, um, that's a long story, I won't tell you. The Economist noticed us, uh, mostly because of Jim Heckman, who's up in the University of Chicago. And he became convinced for a variety of reasons, which I think were quite sound, that you know, economists had to start paying attention to things that were not just cognition, um, how smart you were, your, um, you know, your um, executive functioning, those types of very cognitive factors or the skills that you learn in class, like math and English and writing that there are these non-cognitive things. That was the term that the economists used, unfortunately, um, because then I get, I get to say things like, I'm, an, I'm a non-cognitive psychologist. <laughs> um, so I just sit there and don't think. Um, but you know, it introduced a whole new group of people to the idea of personality and personality development. And the work we were doing on, on change kind of hit at the right time. 
And this spread, well, it's not too surprising when a Nobel Prize winning economist says, hey, I think your stuff's pretty cool. Um, it spread a little bit more like wildfire than what had happened before when we were in charge <laughs> because nobody paid attention to us then. But when Jim, Hep Jim Hepkin said, look, we, sh we should look at this in more detail, people started doing that. Simultaneous to that, uh, you see the, the thing you've seen in your field, which I think started around the same time, which was a shift to, to focus on social emotional skills. That you know, not just training kids on on math and and the like was important. That we needed to do more for kids to be able to arm them with the the things that businesses, the world outside of school, were saying are important, like showing up to work on time, not getting in fights with with coworkers or with a supervisor, um, being open to learning continuously, especially in our modern day of labor market, which does not um, do much for people who want to do manual labor, but does a lot for people who want to do cognitive labor. And, you know, those things change every five years. You need to keep an open mind and learn. Those are all not intelligence, not IQ. They, and they are a focus, obviously, in school psychology and in, in educational psychology. Um, and the two kind of have met and if you look at the talk, I talk a little bit about it, where you see groups like Castle and other groups in, in the education world said, look, you know, we, we have to catalog these things. We have to invest in them. And this is around 2010 to 2012. And they were rather um, Catholic in their approach, right? They didn't, they didn't study grit or conscientiousness or this, just study everything that matters. And they were very interesting, interesting because they vacuumed everything up and they included our stuff in, in, the discussion, which drew us in um, to the conversation. And from my perspective, looking over your shoulders and looking at that type of work, it was difficult not to notice the similarities. <laughs> and so when I would read through Pellegrino's tome on what we should do with social emotional skills published in 2012, I'm looking and seeing that all the things that are called social emotional skills self-regulated learning, um, resiliency, uh, emotional um, resiliency, or, or stress um, resilience, those types of things, they can all be really easily categorized in the big five. Not that I'm, a, I'm not here as like, I'm a big five, not you should all do the big five, but content-wise, the, the big five is convenient. Um, it kind of organizes our world. And it's really hard for anybody to measure anything that doesn't relate in some way to, to the big five. And it was really obvious looking at the social emotional skills work that there was uh, an obvious overlap. Um, obviously there are differences, you know, um, in the particularities of how they're measured and, and what they're measuring. But even then, when we're looking even more closely, which we've done recently, and I can tell you about that if we talk more about it, um, when a lot of people measure social emotional skills, they're actually measuring traits, at least by my definition. So if I, th I think of traits as the relatively enduring thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are enacted you know, in specific situations over time. And you measure those by asking people, in general, what do you like? And, and please give me an internal stable attribution about you know, whether you really do talk to people a lot and then you're extroverted. Um, in my mind, when I first confronted the idea of skill, I thought of skill like skill, like, you know, basketball playing or, you know, carpentry or something where I was taught something and I could learn it and whether I did it or not, totally my choice. And that's what I think of when I think of education. We teach kids, you know, calculus skills, throughout mine, sorry, um, and other types of quali qualities that are, are you know, acquired through an educational setting, through the guide of a teacher or teachers, and you get that skill, you demonstrate your skill, and then you get out. Um, and when I first got into the social emotional skills work, I was expecting to see that. And I was unpleasantly surprised to see, uh, let's say, just a lack of, probably just a lack of diligence about how measured. And I would say probably three quarters of the measures that are called social emotional skills are really trait measures because they ask, you know, in general, do you, um, you know, fall to pieces when things get stressful in school? <laughs> Sometimes they don't even do in school, right? And, and then it's rated on a five point rating scale from, you know, agree to disagree or more like me or not. And you're getting something that's really, really, really close to what I would call a personality trait. And so it was interesting to look over the shoulders of those folks and see that that's done. So this is to say, and to summarize a little bit, um, that there's a huge amount of overlap between what we do. And I didn't expect it. And I think, um, I don't know if the educational psychologists or the school psychologists expect it. I get, I, I get um, a lot of pushback out of educational experts um, as a personality psychologist because there's stereotypes about how personality 
works. You know, it's heritable, it's fixed. It can't, you know, I'm not in the business of changing kids' personality. You're blaming the victim if you describe them in the big five. And you know, of course, I'm saying, look, they can change. <laughs> and so, but that never gets through. Um, but then I look over and see the content domains, and I see the way they're measured, and and I in parallel literature. I mean, you have a, a robust literature on social emotional skills that shows they can be changed, um, just about the same amount that personality traits can be changed. By the way, um, I look at the stabilities of social emotional skill measures, and they look almost identical to what we get. In fact, in many studies, they are identical. And so I see personally an opportunity um, that we could learn from each other at the very least um, because we can leverage the expertise that we have in each place and it would be a tragedy not to do that um, that there are, are you know there's lots of stuff we've done you don't need to do again <laughs> there's lots of stuff you've done that we don't need to do again and we could benefit so greatly um, especially in the um, knowledge that you have of how things work in school settings uh, where you know, I, I, I've never been called upon to work in, in the hard places where it's difficult to do things like trying to get kids to you know do more than read my syllabus. You know, as a college professor, you know, I can I can make that autonomy argument, or I'm not your parent; you can just do what you want. Um, but you know, people have to teach you know, eight-year-olds and, and twelve-year-olds um, have a much heavier responsibility and more time with those kids. And so it would be really good, I think, for my field to learn what what you folks know. Wow. If you go on in the, in the talk, there are other models about you know how to change things and and some kind of convergence. I, I, I won't speak about those at this point, but let's just say that I think there's a tremendous amount of, of overlap and that we should work together. How's that? Absolutely. I so agree. And I, I also think that um, we have somewhat of a responsibility to learn from from you uh, from the research because it's such big business at the moment and I was recently you know, looking for evidence-based curricula on social emotional skills on teaching it and now more and more on assessing those skills to see um, if kids are progressing and and moving forward and what we're trying to help them learn and I was recently at a um, a workshop given by people, I, I believe, from the SATs, the College Board, and they have a new curricula that is um, that is computerized and and you know not free. So schools would buy this social emotional computerized program, and then they have these measurements of um, to tell you how kids are doing. And what struck me about it is is kind of what you were saying that. They they mentioned they referenced Castle and and looking at Castle's um, competencies, social emotional competencies. However, when they described the units, it sounded to me like the Big Five. And uh, the presenter was not a psychologist, so he didn't really have, um, you know, he didn't have the validity studies or anything like that to tell us about how they how they determined whether these things were actual skills and teachable or not, but. But it just struck me as, as slightly alarming because, uh, you know, schools are going to pay a lot of money for this kind of program. And it's, and it's very appealing to say, oh, my goodness, we could spend, you know, 30 minutes every other day and we could teach these kids these skills that matter, that will make their lives more successful, make their relationships better and make them have better GPAs and be more likely to stick with college, all these things. And um it's scary because we want to make sure that we invest our not only the funding and the dollars, but but our time in things that will actually serve kids and families well. So uh, I just wondered if you had any thought about Castle's Castle's framework versus um, some of these curricula that are sort of different. I'm I'm not sure that Castle says they have they have these concepts of self awareness, self management, etc. But um, right. I don't think they themselves say these are skills that you can teach. They're just competencies. Right, right. I really like the Castle system and I like the Castle folks um, and the way they approach things. I, I should um, confess, at least, at least uh, make some things clear. So I've worked with ACT. Um, I've worked with, uh, I haven't worked with ETS. I've worked with the OECD. I've worked with the World Bank. You're in trouble. Um, and I'll just warn you that this is the case, at least this is my impression. The OECD put out a report, a really nice one, um, which basically said, look, social emotional skills are the big five. 
Um, I know the authors, one of them was my student, <laughs> you know, so um, I'm intimately tied to those groups. Um, I advise the OECD on the PIAC, which is the adult version of the PISA study, and I advised uh, them along with a lot of other experts on this new social emotional skills study that they're doing across, I believe, 12 different countries. Um, it's a city-based study. So that's where a lot of the um, efforts coming out that's converging on the big five. Uh, and I have to also confess that um, sitting in one of those advisory meetings, I grew um, increasingly frustrated um, with this uh, fact that you know you have people talking about skills, but then defaulting to the big five, which you know, as if you look in the talk, I, I point out um, one of the indelicate features of development, which is that kids between the ages of ten and fifteen. Eh, if you if you've parented them, you understand what I'm saying. They're not easy, <laughs> and they don't look good on any of our psychological measures, right? Especially social emotional skills, they tend to decrease. Um, and so this idea that you're going to get a big five measure and you're going to give it to a ten year old and you're going to expect them to be better at twelve, ha! Huh, guess what? They're not. You're going to be worse. Um, and part of that, I think, is because the way we measure it is kind of asking for this evaluation of where you're at. And I think they're legitimately saying. I'm just not that conscientious right now because I'm sleeping all the time. I'm going out drinking with my friends. I don't care about authority figures. I want to do something different for my parents. You know, they're legitimately not conscientious, right? Um, but that's not the skill. You know, that's not whether they're capable of cleaning their room or organized or capable of showing up to work on time. In fact, many kids, I know from my own experience, don't do that at home, but they do it very well at work. Um, and they're 16, right? They, they understand the idea. They've learned it somewhere, somewhat unsystematically, I, I might add. Um, so they have the skill, but they're not displaying it as a disposition. So I, I do think it's really, really wrong of us to default to the big five as a way of assessing these things. Castle does not do that. Um, what I, my only um, beef with all of the existing systems to measure social emotional skills is that they're unsystematic in the sense that it's, you know, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say unsystematic is unfair. They're usually created with certain audiences in mind, right? And so uh, Angela Duckworth has a really nice measure, for example, that she, she created in conjunction with teachers. It's very good. It gets four out of the big five. Um, and I think it's, and I'm totally projecting here, but I think the teachers did not want to have anything to do with emotional stability. <laughs> and so there were no, you know, measures or concepts related to whether you could teach kids to not get stressed out. Right. And, and that's not because it's not there, not because it's not important, but because that group didn't want to do that. And I think if you go to each of the social emotional skills groups, they tend not to, they tend to miss like one domain, um, which is interesting. I think if you look across them, you get, you get all of them. This led to uh, an effort that I'm, I'm working on with Chris Napolitano, who's an educational psychologist from the University of Illinois, and, and then Chris Soto, who's one of our traditional personality assessment people. Uh, we um, agreed that we should measure things with skills instead of as traits. And so we've, and, but, but, but importantly, we decided we needed to start with the most comprehensive version of the big five so we could start with something that's comprehensive. Um, and, and kind of in an agnostic way, say, we, you know, we're not education people. We don't care. We, we don't, we're not going to pick and choose domains. We're just going to go when we found the most exhaustive facet measures of the big five. And we started with 30 some odd facets and we're up to 32. Um, and we're probably going to go up to 34. And we changed the, the domain from a trait to a skill. So instead of saying, you know, hey, you know, you talk to people often, you know, uh, when you're in a group, are you the first person to talk? You do you have the, the skill to talk to a stranger, novice to expert? And then we're doing it across the entire domain of the big five, but we're measuring it as a skill instead. That's something I think, and what I really like about it, to be honest with you, is when you look at the content, it really, it almost defines the intervention you're going to do, right? <laughs> so if you want to role play something with somebody to do extroversion, you're going to give them the opportunity to, you know, interact with strangers. And then you're going to provide them with a, a, a menu or, or a script. You know, th these are things you can do to help break the ice. This is, these are conversation starters that work with everybody, right? These are all things that are skill-based and you can teach kids those things. They're tied to extroversion. There's absolutely no doubt that somebody who's extrovert is going to do better on it to begin with, but they're a skill and they can be modified. And so that's, so 
I, I'm trying to agree with your sentiment that it's <laughs> it's a mistake to default to the big five, but there's hope. And I think you know that there that a lot of the systems are out there are really good because they do look at skills, not uh, not the majority of them, but some of them like castles do. Um, and that, and I think that's the right sentiment, especially in an educational setting. That makes a lot I'm of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I mean, that's so much more practical, though, right? You know, because we're in the thick of it with the kids, and the Big Five seems very theoretical. I think to a lot of school practitioners, probably. So that that really, I think, allows things to be much more practical, um, teachable, and as you mentioned, in intervenable um, at right. that level. I should. Does everybody know about the Big Five? Should I describe the Big Five? You you could. I'm not sure. Actually, that's a good. It's a good question so, for our audience because we have yeah. right now. Like, does everybody? Are you guys familiar with that? <laughs> I'm not super familiar, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so it's open. Well, if you do the the acronyms, you do canoe or or ocean. Those are the easy ones. Openness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, agreeableness, and and neuroticism, which is the only one that's negatively pulled. It should be emotional stability. Um, th those are totally a theoretical domains that have come out of gobs and gobs of factor analyses of trade adjectives drawn from dictionaries and even analyses of existing inventories. No matter what theoretical system somebody started with, whether it's Ericsson or, or somebody else, they always came up with a big one. <laughs> so if you factor analyses, it's not perfect, beautiful, elegant, but these domains show up a lot. Um, and more often than not, sometimes people argue for more. So, um, there's a system that also adds honesty and humility. Um, somewhat um, ironically, that was developed outside the United States. I always like to joke. Um, so <laughs> apparently, it wasn't important here. Um, <laughs> so well, I don't, who knows what the significance of that could be? Um, so, but you know, we argue back and forth as as you know academicians about whether we should add the sixth or not. What's beyond the Big Five? Whatever. The Big Five is a really useful organizing system. I mean, if you if you use it as a lens, you'll find yourself going, oh, oh, okay. You know, self-regulated learning. Oh, that's conscientiousness. You know, contextualize in school. Right? How hard do you work on your um, homework and when and do you you know set goals for your homework and do you do your homework in a timely fashion? These are all the same questions I ask for conscientiousness. I just ask them in general, and so it's a really useful thing from a way of understanding the way that the systems work. Um, I just had a thought. Are you at all familiar with the Values in Action survey, the VIA survey? I think it it's from um, Martin Seligman's. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think, I believe that, it, you know, it's been given or taken, it's, it's self-report and it's free online, but it has, they have so much information right now because, um, yeah. it's for eight year olds to, to 99 and parents have to register, sign up their kids. So they must have a lot of, of lot of data. Do, do you, I'm assuming they they, they do. Um, they, uh, for a while, tried to mesh with the academic scientists, um, but it hasn't really done as well as you might like. So the positive psych folks are still going strong to some degree. Well, the Seligman being the, the de facto leader of that group, um, he unfortunately, one of our colleagues died, um, Chris Peterson, who was doing most of the academic or, let's say, scientific work on the structure of that. There's a strong relationship between many of the VIA dimensions and the Big Five. Um, are they the same? Probably not. You know, courage, for example, is um, it could be construed as a combination of the Big Five if you want to. Um, it hasn't uh, established a toehold in the scientific side of things as much as you might want. The, but that does not stop, of course, um, measures being used widely by many people. Um, the MBTI is probably the, <laughs> the most famous example of a test that no scientific scientist who studies personality would use, um, but it is used by more people and known by more people than any other thing in personality psychology, other than birth order. I think those are the two biggies, <laughs> neither one of which we would ever use. <laughs> so, so don't, yeah, you should not take the, the number of likes, the number of uses, the number of, uh, the amount of money used uh, are made by a system as an indication of its scientific validity. Or you could just take us all as curmudgeons who don't want to, <laughs> to glom on, but I don't know. Well, you bring up an interesting point as, you know, I think both of those ideas, the, the, uh, the way that people perhaps group personality traits uh, and create different, I don't know what I would call them, archetypes or um, 
and then create different quadrants of, well, if this mm -hmm. one is connected to this one or this domain is correlated to this domain, then you are black. You have that yeah. combined trait or something. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to happen a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, if you go back, I think I probably used the term extroverted, for example, mm -hmm. which I think I, I will be cast out of my tribe for using that term, um, because well, I'm dedicated to the dimensional systems of psychology and I cannot use a typological system because I know from just years and years of empirical work, there are no typologies in our field. Um, there are no discontinuous, discrete groups um, of people from using our systems, period. Just there might be one case where there's some measure of one thing that does. But for the most part, everything we look at is continuous. That said, um, humans, I think, and I'll make this argument, um, tend to use typological shortcuts, especially for communicating, right? It's a lot easier to say he's an extrovert um, than to say he has a tendency towards extroversion and approximately 1.5 standard deviations above the mean, which means that in certain situations, you, you see what I mean? You don't, you don't do that as a human. Um, you're trying to cut to the chase. You're trying to be simple. And, and so we default to kind of a typing way of approaching the world. We make the mistake, I think, of thinking that the science actually reflects that because there is a dimension underlying introversion, extroversion. And yeah, there are people who are really high and there are people who are really low. Um, and those people might be the, I tell you, I'm shy. I am an introvert, you know, don't talk to me at the party. <laughs> and, and so, and I'm not going to argue with them, um, but that's a, a, an expedient way of, of characterizing the world. We do that often and it's probably a mistake, but at the same time, it's a, a much more efficient way of communicating things as a heuristic of sorts. That it's codified in things like the MBTI is a, uh, an unfortunate mistake um, because that's not a fair reflection of the way people are. If you look at most of the people on the MBTI, they're in the middle of the distribution, so they're switching back and forth between types all the time. So this idea that you're a type and then that's fixed, you know, it's violated every time you take the MBTI twice. And so, you know, th that's not the case. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold people to account for using typological terminology because that's the way we talk to each other. Um, just don't mistake the science for supporting the idea because <laughs> it doesn't at all and probably never will. Yeah, that's it's so interesting to me because just wrapping my mind around this distinction. Um, and I'm, I want to go back to the via, not only because I love it, but <laughs> but I think it's it, it has a different purpose. The values and action survey. I mean, from as I understand it. Um, Seligman and colleagues um, went all over the world and did sort of an ethnographic study about what character traits or character skills, I'm not sure which way they would talk about it, but do do different culture, do cultures, do human beings value regardless, regardless of language, culture, education, et cetera. And they came up with these 24, right? So that just seems like uh, philosophy, maybe, or, um, yeah, like philosophy, like a wisdom tradition kind of thing. And so then the, the survey is, um, you know, all these uh, questions that you answer about yourself and what you would do and how you would respond. And then it gives you, as a result, your top strengths. And so I think what they would say, the positive psych people, is that this is not about... Um, Assessing with the eye, with an aim at, oh, you're low on honesty. We really need to correct that in school. <laughs> it's not about that, but it's about, oh, your top strength is courage. How can you apply that to what you're trying to achieve? So I feel like it has a different purpose altogether. And I wonder if, if some of these other social emotional learning curricula, curricula have different purposes then I mean maybe we shouldn't be trying to measure them or just measure learning or psych psychoeducation or something and not um, changes in a in a child in a student's personality or or trait level does that make sense it does um, so I think part of the issue sorry I'm probably not going to get this right so I'm, I'm not an expert on the via or on the strengths um, I'm not at all averse to the idea uh, of focusing on somebody's strengths as opposed to 
their weaknesses. There's absolutely no problem with that. There seems to be a lot of evidence. Well, not a lot of evidence. There's some evidence that doing that is a good way of working with people. And if you see, for example, in the change models that we talked about in some of our theoretical papers, you know, really want to start with what they're good at. And then if, if you, instead of doing a deficit model all the way, on the other hand, you know, um, if you need to get somebody to understand linear algebra to do their job and they don't know how to do it, you have to teach them <laughs> and you have to sit. So where I'm, uh, let's say, ideologically in agreement that that's a wonderful way of approaching things, um, when push comes to shove, you're going to have areas that people need work on. The interesting thing coming out from the academic side of things um, and watching the positive psych people and others is we didn't again, it was kind of like the way we we're approaching social emotional skills. It was agnostic as to evaluativeness. It's like, look, you know, some things are good, some things are bad. Um, the beauty of the MBTI is it doesn't have any bad stuff in it. They took all the neuroticism out. The VIA is wonderful, right? Because it's all positive. So it's very easy to sell. Um, but you also know that there's some kids who, you know, don't stay in their seat and they, they break rules and they get in fights and, you know, it, whatever you can do to, and it may be that intervening to find their strength first is the best way to reach them. But you do have to get them to stop, you know, fighting <laughs> because that's not, you know, you can't teach the rest of the class if that's going on. So what do you need to do in that kind of situation? You know, so this person could use basically skills on conflict resolution or something of that sort, for example. And a lot of the stuff that you think about isn't necessarily positive that somebody might need. If you stick with a very, you know, I'm only gonna look at strengths and my approach, then you don't see that. You don't have an avenue to take care of it. So I'm a little worried about that. The other interesting thing, and I, I, this might be a matter of time, but it's it's the reality for the the empirical database at the moment. One of the reasons why people are fans now of the big five, um, and personality traits is that there's a tremendous amount of data on the validity of those for predicting outcomes that everybody cares about. And you don't have the same type of data for social emotional skills measured in the traditional sense or things like the VIA. Um, because they just, I mean, the VIA is relatively new, so it's hard to get that data. The social emotional skills work is done typically by people who are like school psychologists or educational psychologists who want to show, I mean, they show really nice validities like from grade four to grade five, social emotional skills predict, you know, better grades, which is great. Um, conscientiousness predicts whether you die sooner or not. Um, it, you know, it predicts what kind of occupational success you have. It predicts whether or not you are going to have a higher probability of divorce, which in the United States is one of the best ways for women to experience poverty. You know, so, uh, conscientiousness does all of these things, for example, so it's just one example. Neuroticism is the core of everything in psychopathology. If you want to know whether somebody's going to end up in a therapist's office, you can ask 10 questions and find out pretty quickly that their probability is going to be higher. The particulars of it, the clinicians will take care of. Um, but when it comes to the validities, the, the, and I'm not saying this is like be, because they're better, it's just because of the way the scientific world has worked in the last few years. You just have a lot of, of data showing that those things predict outcomes. I don't know what courage predicts, at least in terms of outcomes that I care about, right? And I'm not disputing that courage is is not important and not a great thing. I value it too. I just don't know as a psychologist and as a scientist whether I should care. And part of the issue we have right now is that there's a tremendous amount of evidence for caring about certain big five in, in many different countries in many different situations because of, of what they predict. Again, that might change in 30 years when we get the validities for the VIA or for other things, um, but that's where we sit at the moment. And that's what I think what's driving a lot of the conversation. Yeah. That makes sense. Do, do you know of um, any successful attempts in schools to support kids around um, some of these positive outcomes um, in yeah. teaching those skills? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so this, there's two ways of looking at it, right? So one way to look at it is that all the stuff you're already doing, um, you may not want to think about it this way, but the social emotional skills interventions you're doing right now are probably changing the personalities of those kids. Huh. And you know, you, you that, I hope that doesn't disturb you too much. But I mean, because this is, you know, this is what happened with the clinicians, right? They they were not going in to change personality traits. They just happened to include the measures. They were going in to change depression. They were going in to change, you know, eating disorders, substance use, those types of things. And they just happened to be 
comprehensive in their assessments and they included personality trait measures, usually the Spielberger state trait measures, and they got trait anxiety. And, they, and lo and behold, state anxiety changes a full standard deviation and a half when you go through cognitive behavioral therapy for panic attacks. Um, the trait measure still changes to, to a lesser degree. Those therapists were not going into that situation trying to change somebody. I suspect the people who are doing really good, well-informed social emotional skills interventions, ones that are probably a little more long-term, are successfully changing the personality traits of those kids. Whether it sticks or not, I have no idea. Wow. Um, but I would invite you to think that that's a possibility. Beyond that, there are lots of efforts right now um, at trying to, to help kids in these different domains. Whether fortunate or not, I won't render an opinion, but they're mostly being led by economists. Um, and again, tying back to the validity issue, the economists like validity. They, they drive their whole whole field on that. If you can predict behaviors or outcomes they care about, they will do whatever they can to use your stuff. And so they have been convinced that there are these you know, important validities when it comes to non-cognitive factors, including personality. And they're doing interventions, and just because of who they are, because they have uh, a direct access typically to policy-level conversations, they're convincing whole school districts or whole states or whole you know regions of a country to do an intervention and do it as a controlled experiment. And I've seen several of those studies reported in the last couple of years where they were attempting to teach kids essentially to be a little more conscientious, for example, and they succeeded. Um, so there are going to be papers that are coming online that will show that there are these efforts that can help kids on those types of dimensions that prior to some time in history would never have considered as an outcome. And I don't think, and personally, I don't think it's that, it's only surprising, frightening if you thought that personality traits were fixed, unchanging, and unchangeable to begin with. If you don't think that way, then it's like, okay, you know, that's that makes sense. They're kind of like all the other things we um, what do we know about um, as far as intervening on these things, maybe through not a direct way, but, but changing things as far as age? Like, is there, you said that things, you know, change a lot regardless, so it's probably hard to measure. But a lot of times, you know, with, with skills based and whatnot, we know that early intervention is super important for our kids. Or are, the earlier we get in, in there and, and do this, does it have a longer bigger impact or? I would love to know the answer to that question. <laughs> because you know, it's, it's, that's, the, that's the question, right? I mean, Jim Heckman's running around saying right now that you know, we need to intervene when kids are five or eight um, because self-control is so important for their future activities. And we, you, you, like if a kid gets derailed um, through drugs, or alcohol, um, you know, let's say antisocial activities <coughs> in general, like at 16, they can ruin their entire life given the way our system is structured, right? They beg out of going to college, which is the, you know, everybody believes it's the only way to do things, but you know, they might not even get into a good trade because they really derail themselves and maybe they go to jail for a year. And then it's really hard for them to get back on the system, right? And so that, that his argument, you know, it's hard not to argue with that, right? On the other hand, there's no data, right? I mean, we do know there's data showing that kids who are more self-controlled do better but we don't know whether intervening to make kids who are not self-controlled to increase do better. And it would be really nice to know that. Looking at it from a developmental lens, um, and you'll see one of the slides on the talk, you know, that, that, that scallop from 10, it seems 10 is the best possible year of our lives. Um, you, you, you go from there down, right? And then you start gaining later when you're 16, 17, 18. You know, you have to ask the question, if I'm going to do an intervention as an authority figure, as a teacher, trying to get kids who are 12 to be more self-controlled. And is that the right thing to do? Maybe if I can just create a school system or a societal system that doesn't punish them for not being as self-controlled as I want them to be and wait a couple of years. Because when they're starting to contemplate their future and they're starting to you know, practice their tests to get into college or wherever it might be, that's the right time to, to nudge them or to work with them to get a little bit better. So that, that's my thinking when it comes to kids. When it comes to the adults, when we looked at this in the intervention, we did a big intervention meta-analysis, there was no relationship between age and whether the intervention succeeded. So um, there's, there's not a lot of evidence that you can't change somebody who's a little older. If you look at normatively, uh, I would say try, 
try not to change my mind. Uh, 50 year olds are probably the most difficult creatures on the planet um, to get to change. Uh, and that might be simply because of the naturalistic topography of the life course. We've got things figured out, at least we think. Um, and you know, then we think we know the right answer to things and people tell us you should change. We're like, yeah, whatever, little, little kid, get away from me. You know, and, and you don't, you don't, kids tell you you need to be a vegetarian. So these things don't work with 50 year olds. Um, have I seen really good intervention studies to see whether that works? No, no. I mean, we have a, a we have a huge program of research to do when it comes to development to try to figure out when in life course is the right time to do these things, whether the things we do at certain ages stick, um, and and that's to me the you know that's the critical thing, and that's often forgotten I think in the intervention literature. It's like it's not just whether you can change somebody, but it's whether that change results in something good. Might not have to be a permanent change in that quality, right? Might be that you know, if you change kids who are 16 right before they take the SAT, that's enough, <laughs> you know, and they can go back to being whatever they want after that as long as they get the highest score possible and they, they make their future better for themselves, right? Um, so it might not mean that you have to change the folks permanently, but maybe you do. That, that, that's the type of research we really need, and it's the hardest research to do. It's the least popular because people don't want to fund it. Um, you know, there's no no national institute's going to say, yeah, we need to start doing more population-based intervention studies where we track a thousand people from when they're you know 12 after we do this intervention to the time they're 25. But we need that. And given how much money we spend on other things, it's a sad, sad statement that we don't have that data because it's it, it's not impossible to gather and we could do it right now it's not beyond our statistical or methodological means we just don't have the will or the appetite for it and i think that's a tragedy yeah it, it seems like the behavioral economists would have interest in making in doing those studies because then they can decide who to hire and who to fire and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> they do, yeah. Well, the IO psychologists and the economists, yeah, they they they, they tend to want to know what who should be hired, and the answers are usually pretty simple in their world. People were more conscientious, yeah. um, <laughs> and that's one answer. But you know, the other answer is how do you design a society? You know, through your policies on on education, right? Okay. There are occupations that don't require conscientiousness. <laughs> I'm in one. Thank God for academia and being a, a research scientist. If I had to follow rules and have a supervisor and wear a tie. You know, man, um, I would not have chosen this job, but thank God it was around. Um, and you know, and it's one of the last places you can be a, a less than conscientious individual and do quite well. Uh, arts, design, and those places, right? You can you can think in those policy terms, which I think the economists could by saying, okay, you know, let's think about what we need in a society in terms of these different niches, and then then you start thinking differently about human capital and what what skills people possess, and you're not going to be an automaton saying. Every kid needs to be three standard deviations above the mean on conscientiousness. You're going to not not be as as obsessive about that stuff. And I think economists are smart enough to think that way. I think um, pundits tend to get a little bit uh, scaremongery when it comes to these ideas, and they say, oh, "You're just trying to make everybody into a you know a, an automaton for the, the powers that be." And, and we don't have to do that. I mean, we can have a conversation about what it is we want and how we want to structure things. Um, we just have to have the conversation. We had um, just a listener question. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson and his work in personality? Of course I'm familiar with Jordan Peterson. He was a personality psychologist. Um, so how could I not be familiar with Jordan Peterson? One of his, you know, his most famous students is a professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, so uh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, for me, Jordan Peterson was just a, I mean, he wasn't a close friend or anything. Um, I didn't interact with him directly, he correspond with people here, please review this paper for me. Um, you know, he, he writes a letter of recommendation for somebody who's on the job market. So, you know, I knew him through that, those means. Uh, and, and he seemed to me in terms of his personality psychology, be, you know, um, good. <laughs> you know, he seemed, seemed to pretty much have it down. Um, his more recent um, turn, um, which is, you know, for me, it's, uh, I have to admit that I've had more people come to find me and be interested in my work because of Jordan Peterson than anything I've done myself in the last few years, because he became so popular 
that they couldn't refuse but look at some of his YouTube videos on the Big Five and other things. I'm like, ooh, this personality psychology stuff's cool. Let me find out who does that. And then I got people come to me and go, uh, Professor Roberts, I'd very much like to work with you in grad school. You know who Jordan Peterson is? <laughs> it's like, yes, I do. <laughs> do I agree with his politics? Absolutely not. Um, do I agree with what, the way he's approached things? No, that's not the way I would do things. Otherwise, I'd be out there <laughs> doing similar stuff. Um, but yeah, that that was his choice. I know. Uh, I don't know. Recently, he's dropped off the radar screen. I believe he's suffering, and his wife is suffering from alkaline salts, which I find that uh, shouldn't probably throw salt in those wounds. Um, so I hope they're doing better. I did want to just talk a little bit about um, what what really inspired us about your conversation on the three psych. Four psychologists, four beers. <laughs> the, the beers get more numerous as the podcast goes along. I'm sure. <laughs> um, uh, in my role, I work with early childhood through ninth grade, and I, I do often have parents asking, you know, for parenting uh, ideas or recommendations for books and things like that. And I know a lot of school psychologists last year from our book conversation online and social media read The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm -hmm. um, and the argument in that book that parents lately spend so much more time um, sort of hovering <laughs> over yeah, the no. in, I, seems you call it, it involved parenting or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been uh, complaining to my daughters about that because of course we practiced it too. And it's like, please, my mom, he didn't even know where I was most of the time. It was awesome. <laughs> I wish we could go back to those days. Come on, man. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Come back at five. <laughs> Tell me how your day was. <laughs> on, on the other hand, we're like, so how are you? Do you feel good? <laughs> Do you need anything? Can I get you something? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> which, yeah. And then, then you look at the empirical literature. Have you looked at the empirical literature? Yeah. <laughs> so are there are there really nice studies showing that uh, intervening to make parents better at what they do results in, in differences in their kids' personality? No, no, right. But what about the um, the the uh, studies from Calif from California about authoritative, authoritarian? That's solid research. Yeah, no, it's a they're all correlational <laughs> observational studies. They're I mean they are what they are, right? Uh -huh. um, and so, and so, and there have been beautiful studies done, wonderful designs where they took, you know, authoritative parents, the good ones, and they gave them the tough kids. And those, you know, really good parents became crappy parents pretty quick when they had, they wouldn't, you know, and you're like, oh, and then that's not even good research to be honest with you because the sample size was too small. I still like the study. Um, but you know, the broader point is more important in the sense that if if you believe that to be the case, then then it would have been very sensible for us to have programs to help parents be better parents, and those programs would have changed their parenting style. We would have empirical evidence that I have an intervention that changes parents' parenting style, and that change in the parents' parenting style predicts better things for the kids. They don't exist, and it, and I suspect they were done. But I also suspect they didn't show what people wanted. We've done some of the studies we can do in this space. So I have a grad. Now a PhD student who's trying to publish her dissertation, two longitudinal studies, 3,000, 1,000, I think, and 3,000 um, families followed over time, multiple waves, parenting styles along the Baumrin type system over time, where we could track changes. Like, did you get better in your parenting style over time? And they do. Some of them actually do. Does it relate to anything positive in the kids? Nothing. None whatsoever. So... Yeah, you know, I would like to sit here and say, yes, you should go out and get this book because it'll teach you to be the authoritative parent and not the authoritarian parent. And that's going to make the world of difference for your child. But I don't have any empirical evidence to back that up. As a parent, because I don't have any empirical evidence, I don't want to advise you at all. <laughs> because it might be that something you do might actually work for your kid. You know, and if I tell you you should do this or do something different, I might screw things up. Um, but, you know, not. Nonetheless, as scientists, we don't have the data we need to draw the conclusions we want. And does Jonathan's book have empirical data? Of course it does, but it has data like that. It has correlational observational studies which show that if you have any, you know, if you have a positive parenting style, you have kids who are kind of positive. Isn't that nice? <laughs> you know, if your kid happens to be blessed with a little more self-control than other kids and they're not anxious, 
you tend to be a better parent. I could do that too. And I'm not a very good parent, <laughs> you know? So, but if you happen to be you know, blessed with a kid who doesn't have those um, qualities to begin with, you know, what do you need to do to, to do better? I mean, I, I think clinicians and, and school psychologists in that breach are really good, right? How do you help those kids? Mm-hmm. We can do a lot to help them, but how to, but that's again, the deficit model, they're suffering. How can we make things better? Yeah. But how do you make some kid and then make them better through parenting practices? We don't have any empirical data to support that. So the idea that coddling our kids is causing all these negative things, um, isn't, you know, we don't have the, in my mind, we don't have the empirical justification to write books and go on podcasts and scaremonger the crap out of parents who are, are the most, in my mind, they're almost more vulnerable than their kids, right? Because they're desperate and they're, and because you are a parent, because you kind of eventually realize, especially if you have more than one, that you're not that influential you're really desperate to find what you can do that's effective. And that's hard. And, and those are really hard questions. And we haven't had the courage to use a via construct um, to do the right kind of research right, as scientists to, to test the ideas that we want. And that, that is another tragedy that we really should take. I mean, again, it, you know, who's gonna pay for it? Maybe we should, we should you know, crowdsource this with parents because I think parents would fund it. But will NIH do it? No. Will NSF do it? No. Will IES do it? No. Nobody is interested in this except for all the people or parents, which is all of humanity. Policymakers, um, <laughs> no, they don't, they, they're not really, uh, whatever. So they're not going to fund it, um, yeah, which is sad because it is one of those things that we really should know the idea, the answer to the question. We don't, and we probably shouldn't be frightening people in the meantime um, with what data we have, which is relatively weak. Mm. That's so interesting. I have a friend who likes to remind people that, you know, your biggest contribution to your kids is your genetics, you know, before like I can't change anything like, but, um, and then he would say that, you know, the next biggest, um, and I don't even know where he got this from would be just the influence of their peer group and who they surround themselves. Um, yeah, but we don't even know that, damn it. I mean, so like, so I, yeah, like the genetics thing. So if that's true, right then I should be able to predict uh, a kid who's two, I should be able to predict what they're gonna be like like an adult, right? If genetics are important. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that kid's sure different. He was saying that it was like the only prediction, but the biggest that the parent can supply. Okay, so if that's true, then what's the uh, correlation between your temperament at age three and your personality at age 18? Mm-hmm. It's a correlation of 0.1 at max. Mm-hmm. And it expands and gets smaller. So if this genetic signal is so important, it ain't that important, <laughs> right? And so, you know, th- that that is an empirical fact. We've done those studies looking at temperament in zero to three, and what does it predict long term? It doesn't do much. It's, there's a link, right? But it's really small. So your friend might be right, but that's really sad in some respect, though it's probably true that the maximum effect size we have is a correlation of 0.1. Um, and the peers, so I mean, we, I used to call, so we, we've gone back and forth on this. So I used to call it a death by a thousand cuts model of human development. Um, so it's your genetics, it's your, your parents, it's your brothers, your sisters, your extended family, your friends, your school, your teachers, you know, the random events that happen in your neighborhood, whatever it might be. And, and all of these add up because all of them have very, very small effect size. And, and most of in my mind, if you take the big picture view of the, of the empirical data, that's what shows. I've recast it in a positive way by calling it the tapestry model. <laughs> Just pull one thread and you don't ruin the whole thing. Um, so I was told I needed to be a little more positive. Than <laughs> and the thousand cuts model. But I think, I mean, I also think it's, it's kind of the right model, right? You know, the effect sizes for birth order, for parenting, for peers, for these things aren't zero, but they're really small. Mm. Which is kind of cool in some respects because, you know, that means you're you. You're pretty damn unique. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And you also need to stop blaming your parents <laughs> for who you are. <laughs> that's and that bad. big one thing, <laughs> you know. But I, I won't go there. <laughs> I do tell my students they need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> then my teacher teacher evaluations go down when I say that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, really fascinating conversation. Um, we're putting out a last call for questions um, because we're we're nearing our ending time. But this has been super enlightening and, and interesting. And 
I feel like the more I know, the more I'm understanding as we're going through. And now I'm just like, oh, I, I hate that it's nine o'clock. <laughs> so, I'd come back, but I think that would be bad. <laughs> um, okay. And while we're looking for last minute questions, um, reminders for, looks like we've got the Super Bowl coming up. So we're not going to have a podcast then. I don't think we can compete. Um, <laughs> But on 216, we have Dr. Williams on, and she's going to talk about premature birth and the impact on school-age children and, and how that kind of comes into play. And I saw her um, at NASP last time and was like, oh, this is really good. So um, we'll be excited for that. And then after that, um, you know, it'll be NASP time. So I'm hoping that um, everybody's making plans and figuring out uh, what sessions you're going to check out. So I'm excited for that. Um, Rebecca, do you see any last minute questions or do you have anything? I know you you and Eric probably have a zillion million questions on your minds, but you're restraining yourself. Yes, I'm trying to be good and uh, respect Dr. Roberts' time. And I think we are competing with, the, not the Super Bowl, but another game. So um, no, but I, I hope that we can all continue this conversation over time as people are listening, catching up. And Dr. Roberts, if you don't mind, we'll email you any other thoughts if you have um, anything to share or articles or, you, you know, we'd love to know more about your work. So please let us know. We'll post them on Twitter and Facebook and um, continue this awesome conversation. It's so interesting and so helpful. Yeah. Anytime. And if you're ever in through champagne, coffee's on me. Oh. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it looks like we're not seeing anything, right, Rebecca? Okay. I think that, um, you know, we have a lot to chew on and think about, and I think that's awesome. So uh, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us. Thank you. All right. My good pleasure. Night, everybody. Thanks. Good night, everyone. Bye. Good night.